Last summer, I had a pretty difficult gardening moment. It was just before summer solstice, so my plants had been in the ground for a few weeks already. Got home from work after an 11-hour shift. It was dark and I was exhausted. All I wanted to do was make dinner and go to bed. But a responsible voice in the back of my head was like, No, Erin, you need to go water your garden. So, down to the garden I went, and at first I didn't notice anything out of the ordinary, probably because it was dark. But when I got to the cabbage and broccoli, I stopped because the tops were missing, the soil was disturbed, and several of the tender transplants had been uprooted from their homes and discarded, like unwanted toys. I started crying. I couldn't help it. I'd nursed the plants from seed since April helping them overcome a mysterious illness and dancing them around the room for maximum sunlight. And now, all of that time and energy was for nothing. Most of them were damaged beyond repair. I built a fence in the spring to prevent this exact scenario. But what I didn't think about is that a moose, with all of its gangly grace, could hop right over the top. You're listening to Season 2 of Out Here, a podcast about life in rural Alaska. The sinking feeling lasted through the night, but I realized pretty quickly there wasn't much I could do but keep trying. All of this to say that carving cultivation space out here in the Alaskan wilderness takes persistence and will inevitably break your heart at some point. Here's lifelong homesteader and farmer, Ina Jones. If you're a farmer, you're a continual optimist or you wouldn't be in it. Nobody goes into the winter thinking, oh, next year is going to be worse. On episode one of Out Here, Clearing Land, we'll meet two beginning farmers using all of the persistence and optimism they can muster to clear their own space and nudge a budding local food movement. Where I grew up in the Midwest, Farmers laid the foundation for an agricultural industry centuries ago. Nowadays, most beginning farmers just have to find farmland, rather than doing the tedious work of turning forest to field. But not so in the southeast Alaska town of Haines, where we'll travel on this episode. The remote end-of-the-road town is nestled between the ocean and dramatic snow-capped peaks. It's really beautiful, but that also means there's a limited amount of land there. There is a small history of farming in Haines that dates back to the homesteading days. It was once the strawberry capital of Alaska. But things have changed since then. Our globally connected food system no longer has to rely on local production. When farmer Sally Boisvert moved to Haines in 2004, she didn't find much of an agricultural scene at all. When originally I wanted to become a farmer someday, I thought I would be in a place with like a tradition of farming and other farmers to collaborate with and yeah it's it's kind of like just figure it out on this episode we'll talk with sally and farmer leah wagner about starting from scratch like really from scratch we'll hear the lessons farming teaches about the natural world for children and adults then we'll learn about the challenges of farming in a place without a strong agricultural tradition One of the biggest problems is that there's a lack of infrastructure and a lack of access. And so we bought a walk-behind tractor because that's what we could afford, but there wasn't even a sit-on tractor, a proper tractor to 
turn our field. And so we actually pulled most of our half acre, um, we pulled most of the sod by hand, which was a pretty insufferable process. Part one, roots. Do you mind just introducing yourself so I have it on the tape? Sure, my name is Sally Boisvert and I operate Four Winds Farm here in Mosquito Lake, outside of Haines, Alaska. Do you consider yourself a farmer? I consider myself a market gardener because the scale. We're sitting in Sally's kitchen, inside the house she and her husband built themselves. Sally's infant son just bonked its head, hence the screaming. She scoops him up, plops him in his high chair, and hands him an avocado. And then, without missing a beat, picks up where she left off. I had always hoped to be able to own my own farm from fairly early age, probably about 17 or 18. When I moved to Haines in... 2004, I pretty much just noticed right away that there was no locally grown produce for sale, and I really missed having access to really fresh seasonal foods. So she decided to do something about it. The kids are accompanying us today on a tour of her farm. Their two-year-old watches cartoons quietly on the couch for now. Four days a week, she hires childcare so she can work without too much distraction, but today isn't one of those days. I hadn't really thought this whole audio interview with the toddler Fine. thing through. <laughs> That's the thing, though. It's part of it. Yeah. The baby cooing and the two-year-old interrupting are part of Sally's story. Sally's husband fishes in the summer. He helps in the early spring and fall. And he does play a key role in keeping things going. He's the expert carpenter here, which is really, really helpful if you're building a farm out of the wilderness. You want to find an expert carpenter willing to work for vegetables. But from mid-June to the end of September, she's the only adult around. My work is at home and my home is at work. So it can be frustrating to see projects that I want to do and not be able to do them. And also to see my children, but really needing to occasionally buckle down and, and work. That's because Sally's farm is right out her front door. Outside, her two-year-old runs through the farm barefoot. She stops to pick a snow pea fresh off the vine. I'm trying to get one. Can you need some help? Yeah. Pull. Pull. Good job. Nice job. Snowbee. Snowbee. She wants to show me all the different crops, and there are lots of them. There's eggplant, melons, raspberries. I want to go to the raspberry patch. I want to go to the... Let's go for a raspberry. The farm is a great learning environment, Sally says. Her daughter helps with a lot of different farm jobs. They'll be digging up the potatoes together tomorrow. It's a great way to provide opportunities to learn about the natural world. You know, some hard lessons and some, some fun, amazing revelations. For example, I broke a tomato plant while my daughter and I, who's two, were transplanting this spring, and she was very upset. The natural world and its circle of life lessons are part of farming everywhere. Precipitation, temperature, pests, all of those things can fluctuate without warning and wreak havoc on crops, especially when you're first starting out without a lot of knowledge or infrastructure. There are tools to help, yes, but still, taming wilderness isn't easy. 
I certainly end up spending a lot of time kind of on the edge of the natural world because I'm always trying to change and control the outdoor space I have here, even though I'm totally at the mercy of, of the natural world. The wilderness bleeds into Sally's farm, maybe more so than a lot of other places, like when a moose comes wandering through and munches some crops. Her farm is surrounded by forest. Before she started clearing the first field 10 years ago, it was all that way. It was second growth spruce and cottonwood, and just not being able to search online or in any book for how to do it, just struggling through with that, and at first not having the right equipment or the right knowledge. But as any good farmer does, she persisted. She pulled out the sticks and stumps, planted cover crops to add nutrients to the soil, and started growing in 2013. She's originally from New England, so she had to teach herself how to deal with Alaska's late frosts and long summer days. Sal used a USDA program to add high tunnels to the property. The large plastic-covered structures extend the growing season by adding warmth and protection to crops. And then, once Sally carved out a space in the wilderness, she had to carve out a space in her community. The challenge was, at first, thinking, oh my gosh, I've done all this work clearing this land. Will anyone want any vegetables? It took time, but it turns out people do want local produce in Haines. For several years, I was pretty much the only person bringing crops into town. And then in just the last two or three years, I think, they're probably now maybe half a dozen or more market gardens. And it feels good to be part of that. I love the variety of skills that have to come together to run a market garden. I love fitting all the pieces together and making my own mistakes and my own solutions and doing every aspect from the seeding to the marketing, the plumbing and the electrical and the clearing and everything in between. It's just what I settled on as a way I wanted to interact with whatever community I ended up in and it's been wonderful. We'll meet small farmer and seed grower Leah Wagner. Leah and her husband Nick started their seed company Foundroot in 2012. They moved to Haines four years ago to start growing their own seeds for the company. Right now we're transitioning the business from sourcing our seeds to Alaska-grown seed. In conjunction with that, we do sell produce locally in the Haines area. Part 2. Seeds. When I first meet Leah, she's standing outside her yurt, looking stressed. She's trying to coordinate a flower delivery to Juneau, a city that's close geographically, but not exactly easy to get things to. It's only accessible by boat or plane. She shovels me inside between phone calls, and when things are finally settled, she takes a deep breath and offers me some tea. Um, I put chamomile and lemon balm and mint and lavender, all from the garden. Yay. <laughs> been a difficult summer for Leah and her business Foundroot. Normally, Haynes gets lots of rain, but that didn't happen this year. We started breaking ground two years ago. Last year was kind of our first real season, and we don't have our system set up. And so when it was 95 degrees 
repeatedly and just this horrible drought and heat wave for pretty much the entirety of the summer. Um, we couldn't water our plants. And so we spent thousands of dollars that we did not plan on nor really had to set up a watering system. And by the time it was set up, it was like kind of too little too late. Both Leah and her husband Nick are longtime gardeners, and they still produced lots of food. It just wasn't the healthy plot they were used to. Being a beginning farmer is a lot of work anyway, but with the added stress of the weather, the juggling act felt endless. I think the way Nick was describing it was that we started a marathon. We realized pretty instantly that our shoes were tied together. We fell. Maybe we lost our shoes. We found someone else's shoes that didn't really fit. And we've just been kind of tripping to the finish. Keeping plants happy and disease-free is especially important for Foundry because they don't just grow produce. They grow seeds. The kernel that births another crop needs to be resilient and strong. It's difficult to know what will be viable after all the heat stress. Leah says they'll do germination tests to see. In terms of seed crops and things like that, like we're going to do what we can this year, but the challenges were pretty endless and some of them were insurmountable. And so we're hoping with some really hard lessons learned and with a lot more infrastructure that next year is going to be a really awesome season. After we finish our tea, Leah drives me down the road to the half acre plot. I'm not only so many hours in the day. That is is true. (laughs) In August... Things look hot and a bit withered, but some crops that usually struggle here, like the green beans, are loving it. Oh, those are beautiful. Yeah, aren't they nice? So this crop is looking really good. Yeah. Others, not so much. So, these are those whippersnappers I was talking about, and we've gotten a little bit of damage, but um, they're actually doing pretty well considering you can see these guys did really badly. So. Whether this summer's uncharacteristic heat is connected to climate change is not a question for Leah. In Haines in particular, we're seeing unprecedented temperatures and climate trends. A lot of, you know, the work that we're doing day to day is just kind of bearing witness to watching these glaciers melt. We are here. We are watching it. We are seeing it. Some evidence predicts a hotter and drier southeast Alaska in the summer, as the weather patterns from the Pacific Northwest shift northward. Earlier spring snowmelt could also contribute to drier soils. But nobody really knows what's going to happen. As Leah and her husband move forward, they're finding ways to deal with the uncertainty of a changing climate. In some ways, she says, it's nice that they're just starting out, because... They're not operating under any assumptions about what'll work and what won't. This summer, certain things did really well that wouldn't normally do well. We grew our winter squash outside with no covering. Um, I heard of people growing tomatoes outside. Those are things that are not the norm here. And so we can't rely on the crops we used to, which were colder season crops that enjoyed the rainforest, nor can we rely on these hot weather crops that enjoyed the summer that we had. And so moving forward as farmers in this area, we pretty much just have to hedge our bets. And so everything we do is going to have to be somewhat divided because we can't assume one or the other anymore. That idea, she thinks, could be expanded to farms all over the state. With the different microclimates, at least in Haines or throughout the state of Alaska, you can have certain areas growing certain things well 
um, in spite of a changing climate. And maybe you won't be able to grow everything every summer, but we can help support each other in a broader way. And I think we've always been proponents of disseminating our um, food system locally and regionally. And I think doing seeds and doing like small scale growing is always going to be more resilient in, in a changing climate. To better understand what she means by adding resiliency to the food system by growing seeds, you have to understand a few things about seeds. There are different types open-pollinated, hybrid. We could do a whole episode on the differences and benefits of each type. But what you need to understand here is that open-pollinated seeds, the kind founder it sells, can be collected and replanted. That creates a never-ending loop of food and increases food security. Technically, you can do that with the other kind too, but you could end up with a plant that's sterile or one that's different than the plant you started with. With open pollinated plants, every year, you can find the healthiest plants in your garden, save their seeds, and over time, you have seeds adapted to your specific growing environment. Human-driven natural selection. The amount of seeds that can be produced from one plant is kind of mind-boggling. And so to be able to redistribute that and see how much food that that turns into and how we've really solved a pretty, pretty ingrained problem at its source is, it's, it's really encouraging part of the politics of the company, to spread the gospel of seed saving and encourage people to buy seeds locally, rather than purchasing through big corporations that source from overseas, and to farm sustainably and tread lightly, staying conscious of their relationship with the natural world. I see the natural world as a as a visitor and not something that I'm entitled to. And so if I can leave the food in the forest for those living in the forest, I will. And when I go out into wild spaces, I understand that I am not always meant to be there. I think farming is considered like by a lot of the growing community is a pretty invasive thing. And so we didn't like that word, but we work so hard. And if you don't call yourself a farmer, people don't really understand how hard you're working. And even so, we find people to not really understand the scale and the intensity that we're working at and also what it feels like to be doing it brand new for the first time and not have that infrastructure and those systems in place. And so we have become quite proud of calling ourselves farmers, even though Traditionally, the, you know, the word farmer probably had some better equipment and <laughs> easier days than we have. Maybe government subsidies, I don't know. Farming is incredibly difficult, incredibly lonely work. And when people tell you, you know, are, are thanking you for growing food for them or growing seeds for them and reminding you, how valuable that is for them personally, it's it's a really encouraging process. Optimism and persistence. It'll get you through anything. Even starting a farm out here in rural Alaska. You've been listening to Out Here, the podcast about life in rural Alaska. 
on the next episode, we'll talk about homesteading, subsistence, and food security. Music this week comes from Blue Dot Sessions. Artwork is from Ian Giori. Thanks to the Rasmussen Foundation for helping fund this project. And thank you for listening. You can listen to more episodes at www.outherepodcast.com or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And if you haven't listened to season one about life in McCarthy, where I'm at, go for it. You might have some extra time on your hands. Remember, keep your chin up. For Out Here, I'm Erin McKinstry. <laughs>